Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Gospel of John, where we learn and understand and appreciate and marvel at the at the complete person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, today we do want to pray for all the saints. We want to pray especially for those who are in difficulty, suffering at this time. We want to pray for the persecuted church around the world. We want to pray today, Father, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together at the end of our service today, that we would concentrate on and marvel at the death of your son, Jesus Christ, all it has accomplished for us as believers, especially, but for the whole world, indeed, glorifying you in the whole universe. And so we thank you again for all these gifts. We ask us in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just a quick note, if you're on Skype this morning, we will ask that you mute your microphone at this time. Just to make sure we uh, can hear everything, if you haven't already. Oh, one other thing. We're going to sing one congregation song now and a second one right before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that's, that's what we're going to do. All right, if everybody could please stand at this time. Unless you're cradling a baby, then you're welcome to sit.
Okay, Sadie, you get the Singer of the Week award. <laughs> I think you're going to be winning a lot of those. All right, a couple of announcements today. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today. Schedule note, we're taking our summer vacation from August 22nd to August 30th. What that means is that we'll have no services Thursday, August 25th or Sunday, August 28th. Schedule note, a new one. Uh, Rich Freeman from Chosen People Ministries, they have a ministry to evangelize to the Jewish people. He'll be with us here on Sunday, September 28th, and he'll be preaching. So we're looking forward to that. What did I say? 28th. You, you get the pupil of the week award. Yeah, it's Sunday, September 18th, 28th not being a Sunday. Rich Freeman from Chosen People Ministries, I'm looking forward to seeing him again. And he's preaching. A, uh, once again, he'll be preaching with us around the same time as the holidays in the Jewish calendar. So that'll be a highlight. And I'm sure he'll have something to say about that. All right, let's begin. Today's message is, uh, is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 21 in just a minute, just a moment. Title of today's message is, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I have I am capitalized to remind us all that that's, a, that's an Old Testament reference to the, to the Lord being uh, God. It's the name of the Lord God in the Old Testament. When Jesus uses it in this kind of way, that's what he's, he's bringing out the fact that I am God and I'm going to tell you something else about me that I haven't revealed before. We've seen this several times already where he said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. We have this again this morning. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's begin now in John chapter 11, verse 21. John chapter 11, verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. Background, Jesus and his disciples were in, in, in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And then the word came from a messenger that Lazarus was sick. And then Jesus delayed for two days. And by the time he got to Bethany, nearby Jerusalem, the other side of the Jordan River. Of course, Lazarus had been dead for four days. So when Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany, they arrive to a scene of mourning and great sorrow. Lazarus was dead. He had been in the tomb for four days. His sisters, Martha and Mary, were grieving. A large crowd of mourners joined them. The sisters had hoped that Jesus could have arrived while Lazarus was still living. Surely Jesus would have made his good friend Lazarus well again. So now Martha needed to tell Jesus about the sorrow that had filled her heart in his absence. 
Verse 21 again. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So so no sooner has she expressed her disappointment, her sadness, than she, than she turns to Jesus himself and understands once again that he's everything that he said. She'll say it again at the end. You are the Christ, the son of God, the one who has come into the world. And so after she says it were gotten her grief out, then she returns to who Jesus is. And, and in her statement of faith, her belief in him about who he is and his relationship to God, namely of his father, a father-son relationship. She says, even now, even now, when was that? After Lazarus died and was in the grave for four days. I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Of course, in her heart, she was hoping, she held out hope that some possible way he'd be able to do the greatest miracle and bring him back to life. But she didn't say that. And the reason is, is because she and her faith understood that God's will will prevail. But she also understood that whatever Jesus asks in prayer, the father gives him. And so she left it in that tension, in that, in that saying, saying, I give it all to you and you know what's in my heart. And of course, that's that's a model for our prayers also, that when we go before the Lord, we have something on our hearts. We typically express it or sometimes we, we cannot. And the Holy Spirit expresses it for us. But what we're doing, if we're if we're honest and we're straightforward about who it is that we're speaking with, is we forget about any solutions we might have and we just hand it into his arms and leave it with him. Whatever, you know, it's wide open, Lord, whatever you want to ask God, we know he'll give to you. She knew Jesus had great power. He demonstrated that power again and again, both in, in, in Galilee all right, and in Jerusalem and in Judea. He had already taken a man who was born blind and restored it, given him his sight for the first time. He had healed a man who had who had been paralyzed for, for a long time. In fact, in other, in other Gospels, but not John, he's already come across somebody who just died and brought them back to life. But never had he come across someone yet who'd been di- who had died and been buried for four days. Nevertheless, Martha had hope. She knew that if all it would take would be one word with his father, and who knows what was possible. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now that statement is pregnant with meaning. And it's not going to come all out at once. In fact, it appears, you know, if you're thinking about how Martha might have heard that, your brother will rise again. And, of course, that's a language of, of the future. And so as a good, faithful Jewish woman who knew Scripture, she immediately took what, what, what appeared to be, okay, what appeared to be a basic statement about life after death, right? Your brother will rise again. Very unspecified, though, right? She, he doesn't talk about when that will happen, for example. We're going to see as he develops this, there is, is revelation here about resurrection. We're going to see that there's much, 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 much more here than at first meets the ear. It's basic statement. It's a statement about there, the fact that there's life after death. How does Martha respond to that? Verse 24. Martha said to him, 
I know we still on. Okay. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again. Notice when she points to in the resurrection on the last day. John eleven twenty four. Martha replied to him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. In other words, he's comforting her. First of all, all right. He, she knows she's just expressed her sadness, her mourning, her regret that he couldn't be there. She's expressed the hope that she still had that Jesus, all he had to do was ask from the father. And whatever he asked, she knew was guaranteed the father would, would give. And now Jesus has spoken and she and as this, there's hope in those words. And yet that hope she sees is a long term hope. Right. There will one day be a resurrection. Notice what she says. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. So great faith here, actually. Great faith. He's going to rise again. There's going to be a resurrection. But notice when. When does she pinpoint that? On the last day. On the last day. Okay. That's an expression that we find in the Old Testament as well as in the New. In fact, it's, it's probably said that way in the Old Testament much more than in the New. Right. We, we hear the end times. Right. And so forth in the New Testament. But here she's, again, pointing to something that was an article of faith among devout Jews who knew their Bible. Martha right here is reciting a belief, a, a, a truth in the Old Testament, a Jewish belief that there would be a resurrection of the dead on the last day. There would be a general resurrection. There would be those who have a resurrection of life, the righteous, the believers. And those that have a, had a resurrection of judgment, the unbelievers. Jesus has already said as much earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. He's already talked about uh, the fact that there will be this resurrection of the dead on the last day in the future. So let's take a look at this this morning. Let's put ourselves in the place of where Martha is at this moment. Hearing what she heard, your brother will rise Again, hearing how she expressed that and she pinpointed a time and, and it was a statement of belief in what the Old Testament had to say. And, and the fact is that the Old Testament talks about a general resurrection on the last day. And we're going to spend a few minutes this morning going through several Old Testament scriptures that teach that so we can see the background and what she would have understood going in. You see, Jesus as the great teacher always does that, right? He always starts when he's going to reveal something amazing with where people were at at the moment. He never just jumps right into the, the, the punchline, if you will, the, the new revelation. He always brings them along. Haven't we seen that so often in the Gospel of John where he's done that? He did that with the woman at the well when step by step he brought her to the point when she expressed the faith that the Messiah would come, then he revealed that he's the Messiah. Remember that? He, so he's done that sort of thing before. And he's going to do it again. And he's going to start with what the Old Testament talked about and taught and revealed about the resurrection. So let's see a few Old Testament scriptures on this subject. We will begin in the oldest book written. And that is the book of Job. It's the, it's the, it was written before any other book was written. Book of Job. We're going to go to Job chapter 19. The oldest book in the Bible. The book of Job. Job was probably a near contemporary of Abraham. 
Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, a- Abraham's in the Bible. It's in the, he's, he's there a lot. He's first introduced in the book what? Where is he introduced first, Abraham? Which book? Genesis, Genesis right? Genesis actually goes all the way back to in the beginning God, right? So what do I mean that Job is the oldest book? What I mean that it was actually written earlier. You see, Moses wrote Genesis. It was about things that occurred way, way, way before Job ever lived, but it was written after Job. So so Job, contemporary of Abraham, not a Jew, a Gentile. That's interesting be, and by the way, he was a Gentile when there wasn't a Jew. So in that sense, he's universal. He's the, he, what he has to say about life and about what he came to understand about the Lord is something that applies to every human being. So that's that's what's, what's amazing about going back to the start. It's a similar thing when we go back to the start of faith in the Lord. And that's, of course, Abraham right? is a general statement. He, too, was what when he expressed faith in the Lord. When he was given the first promises, he was he was not a Hebrew yet. He wasn't yet. He was the first Jew, but he hadn't yet been circumcised himself. And so it was it was when he was still in that category of representing everybody that he first expressed his faith. In any event, let's look at Job chapter 19, verse 23. Job chapter 19, verse 23. Now, now Job, of course, is I mean, many of us know, know the story of Job. Right. How he had everything and he lost it all and how he couldn't understand why the Lord did that to him. He knew that he'd lived a righteous life. He's struggling with that. He's mourning. He mourns the day he was born. His friends come to him. And the best thing they ever did was to say nothing for seven days, because after that, the things they said made it worse. Okay, but every once in a while, Job steps back from his grief and he gets these glimpses of the hope that will never die. Look at Job chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. This is Job. This is the oldest written book. This is before Abraham. This was a man who knew the Lord, though, knew God, had lived a righteous life understood this was true, or at least had that revealed to him in his grief. I know that my Redeemer, my Redeemer, now what a word, what a word Redeemer is. Why? Because when you're redeemed, you're redeemed from something, right? What what, what does every human being have to be redeemed from? Sin, right? And that's, of course, the whole struggle that Job has. See, he he had one great character fault, and that was arrogance, it's a fault that a lot of people have in the sense of saying, I lived a good life. How is it? You know, we, there's a book that was written a, a long time ago now. Why do bad things happen to good people? Right. Remember that book? Well, that's Job's problem. I'm a good guy. Why is this bad thing happening to me? And the answer, you know what the answer is, quite simply, there's no such thing as a good person. That's why in this of themselves. So that's a false premise. Well, Job had one also. He thought that everything God did, he did, God did in response to something a human being did. A lot of people make that mistake. And that's, of course, at the end, that was, that's the big lesson, right, of the book of Job is God comes and he says, think about who I am. Think about the fact that I was here billions of years ago, that I created you and I created the universe. 
and I control everything. I know how everything works in the whole universe. And you dare to tell me that I'm treating you in a, in a, in a bad way? You see, they had, yeah, in other words, they had to come to the fact of the awesomeness of God and how his ways are way above our own way. But even here in chapter 19, it's a 42 chapter book. Even here, he's expressing what he needs and what he knows is true. Verse 25 again. As for me, I know that my redeemer lives. And notice how he puts it next. And at the last, that's the last day. At the last, he will take his stand on the earth. What an incredible vision. I mean, Job was a prophet. We don't usually call him that. But he had the same great vision that Isaiah would later have, that there would be this last day when the Lord would be standing on the earth, namely the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, he's not talking about a third-degree burn, right? He's talking about his entire body has been corrupted as he's died and is decomposed. All right. Even after my skin is destroyed, my body is no more. It's in the grave. Yet from my flesh, I shall see God. Wait a minute. Your flesh is just it's gone. It's in the ground. It's it's food for trees. And here you are saying that in your flesh, in the future, in your body again, I will see God. Can, can you see how that's an incredible statement of the resurrection from the dead? Job, thousands of years before Jesus came, a thousand years before the prophet Isaiah, uh, and so, so forth. Okay, so he expressed this incredible truth about the resurrection on the last day, though. That's the thing I want you to see, too. Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, in yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold. And notice whom my eyes, you can't miss the fact that he's talking about having that body back, right? With my eyes. This isn't some, this some spiritual thing. It's not a dream. It's not a vision anymore. In my flesh I'll see God. With my eyes I will see him. And not another, my heart faints within me at that hope that I have. Here we have. In the book that was written at an earlier date than any other, Job unmistakably describing his own future bodily resurrection from the dead. Who does he give all the credit to? It's right there in the book, right there in verse 25. My Redeemer, right? What is that? Now, who, now we know who the Redeemer is, of course. It's who? The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that he is the one who will take his stand on the last day as the God-man, as God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he saw it even back then. He gives all the credit to his Redeemer. On the last day, that Redeemer will take his stand on the earth. He'll come down, as we know, from heaven. He'll place his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will take his stand on the earth. And then... That's, of course, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's Job. And clearly, in the oldest book written in the Bible, there's a statement about the resurrection of the dead on the last day. But now let's go to King David for a couple of minutes. And we're going to look at a couple of Psalms, actually just one, um, this morning. Because King David also, he wrote of his confident, unshakable hope that the grave was not the end. The grave was not the end. Let's look at Psalm chapter 16, verse 7. 
Psalm chapter 16, verse 7. Psalms is a just a little ahead, forward in the Bible from, from Job. Psalms chapter 16, verse 11. Psalm 16. This is the same psalm, by the way, that Peter will cite in his very first evangelical speech in Jerusalem after after the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles. He'll cite this. And, 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 and from seeing what he says, we realize that David's talking about Christ. But in any event, Psalm chapter 16, verse 7. David, now, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, just like Job's heart fainted within him. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Why? My flesh also will dwell securely. What does that mean? It means that even after I die, I know there will be a time when my flesh shall have it again. It will dwell securely. And here's why. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This, by the way, has its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ when he, when he was when God the Father raised him from the dead on the third day. But even David saw that he would not be abandoned forever now to Sheol. Okay, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor, that's David, nor will you allow who? Your Holy One to undergo decay. That Holy One, that was, a, that was another title in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And so you will not allow your Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, to undergo decay. You will make known to me, notice, the path of life. In your presence, where in your presence is fullness of joy, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Now, we're going to see later on, just file that your presence away. Who is he talking about? The Lord. He's talking about the Holy One, the Messiah. And he's saying, I will be in your presence. And that will be when I realize that my flesh dwells securely. I will realize that I have reached the path of where the path of life leads. I'll have fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Job, David, Isaiah. Let's now go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, if you want to head there. We're going in order. Okay. Job, David, Psalms, Isaiah, and then we'll go in Daniel, too. Nice little survey of the Old Testament. We've been doing that a lot lately, haven't we? In Thursday evenings, we've been doing a lot of that. You know, the book of Isaiah serves on Thursday in our textbook to study the Bible. Because we're going a lot of places in the Bible. Not simply the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is still looking ahead. Job looked ahead to the last day. David looked ahead to the Messiah. Isaiah is going to look ahead to the kingdom of Messiah. At a time when the Lord God will swallow up death for all time. See, things are starting to come into focus. Very general when it came to Job. More specified because the person is revealed, the Messiah. And now we're going to see the the incredible things that will happen when Jesus ushers in his kingdom. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain 
David said, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Well, here are here's a beautiful description. It's descriptive. It's not covering everything, but it's it's a, it gives us a flavor of what's going to happen when the kingdom is established. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Mount Zion, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, the Mount Zion, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. That's the shadow of death. Even the veil which is stretched for all nations. Again, talking about death. Verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time. That's a description of resurrection from the dead. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people, the Jews, from the old earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, that's the day when Christ is back on earth, establishing his kingdom. It will be said, behold, this is the Jewish people now. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. In your presence is fullness of joy. Then in the very next chapter, chapter 26, go to go to chapter 26. Now we're going to go to verse 19. All right. Very next chapter. Isaiah 26, 19. Here he's going to describe, he's going to describe exactly the resurrection from the dead. Look at Isaiah chapter 16, chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah 26, 19. Really clear. Isaiah, the mouthpiece of the Lord, speaking to the Jews, says what? Your dead will live. That's a really clear, basic statement about the resurrection, right? Your dead will live. Not only that, your corpses, their corpses will rise. Again, unmistakable, talking about the resurrection from the dead. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. Again, unmistakable, talking about the resurrection. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Clear description of the resurrection from the dead. We have it from Job. We have it from David, we have it from Isaiah. And now we're going to look at one more prophet this morning, and that's Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 12, the very end of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. Boy, I am struggling to compete with an infant this morning. No. Don't get too distracted, ladies. Mostly a ladies thing. All right, otherwise, I don't know. Josh and I are going to have to talk. Maybe we'll make that the, the mother's room over there by the, uh, we can put a little plate on front of that. Come on, folks, concentrate. All right, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Finally, Daniel pinpoints the time when, this res- when the resurrection itself will occur. Again, Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now at that time, there it is again, there's a specific time. Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. This is talking about, by the way, the midpoint of the tribulation. 
the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Let me put it that way. That's better. And there will be a time of distress, the great tribulation, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, the Jewish people, everyone who was found written in the book, all believers will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. You're in the dust of the ground and you wake. And that's resurrection from the dead. These to everlasting life, righteous people. Others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, now we have seen this in the Gospel of John also. This ultimate, final, eternal separation. Right, He who believes will not be judged. He who doesn't believe has been judged already for one reason, because he has not believed in the only Son of God. Clear? Hey, you know, people don't want to face this fact, the judgment. There is a judgment, okay? It's going to be severe for unbelievers, terrible, okay? And we need to tell unbelievers this. We want to, we like to shy away. We, you know, we, a lot of us maybe have this idealized version where everything works out in the end. You know, we've been taught that from a little child, right? The, the nursery, nursery, although, you know, what's interesting. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fables where everything doesn't turn out good at the end. Have you ever noticed that? Like, oh, like Hansel and Gretel, for example, that didn't turn out good at the end. And for unbelievers, it's just not. And we actually have a responsibility to let them know that. Okay. In any event. And, and, and people say they don't believe in hell. Well, then you don't believe in the Bible. It's that simple. If you don't believe that God's wrath will come upon the unbeliever, then you're not reading the Bible right. If you don't believe that there's a judgment and that unbelievers will be judged and will be eternally separated from God, then you're not reading your Bible right. You need to read those passages like this one. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake. Those, to, these, the righteous, the everlasting life, Others, unbelievers, to disgrace and everlasting contempt, everlasting life, everlasting contempt. Boy, it doesn't get any clearer than that. Okay, verse three, though, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And in this respect, it does end well. All's well that ends well for the believer in Christ. And by the way, this is also, by the way, talking about rewards. That's another thing. You see, believers will also undergo an evaluation. And, and it's the, those with insight. It's those who have mastered the word of God. Why? Because you want to know more and more about the Lord. And the Lord reveals more and more as you, as you hear the word of God. They will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. That, that, that by the way, is a far greater description of incredible reward, don't you think? Even though we think of crowns on our head, okay, but what, maybe the crown is light, right? Why? Because, because those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, you see, what's that? Witness to the unbeliever, but also leading people to practical righteousness in the sense of hearing the word of God and putting it into practice individually and as a group, like the stars forever and ever. Okay, let's go back to the Gospel of John now. But we're going to go to John chapter 6 in just a moment. John chapter 6. We are in chapter 11, but we're going to chapter 6 in just a moment. Okay, let me give you the passage. John chapter 6, verse 39. John chapter 6, verse 39. I'll give you a moment to get there. 
Now, this is what we've done this morning. We heard Martha talk about that. Yes, I know my, my brother will rise on the last day. We've seen how that is an Old Testament teaching. We've seen it in Job. We've seen it in David. We've seen it in Isaiah. We've seen it in Daniel. Now we're returning to the Gospel of John. And now we're going to see the treatment that Jesus gives to the subject of resurrection. Okay. And he starts, again, in his teaching, he starts with what they already understood. But then he adds to it. And like everything else we've seen in the Gospel of John, when he adds to the picture of understanding, it's always about himself and his identity. That's what he's doing in the Gospel of John, revealing more and more and more about who he is. Right. We've seen this from the very start. The Gospel of John answers the question, who is Jesus? Okay. Well, John, in John chapter 6, records a passage. And not only does Jesus talk about the fact that, yes, there will be a resurrection of the dead on the last day, but he brings himself into this picture in a marvelous way by saying, I'm going to tell you who's going to do it. I'm going to do it. This Jesus who is walking among the people, this Jesus who's being rejected by the Pharisees, he is going to be one day. Not only will there be the resurrection on the last day, not only will there be a judgment, but he's the one who is going to administer that. He is the one who was given the power from the, by the Father to raise the dead on the last day. Look at John chapter 6, verse 39. This is something new, not revealed in the Old Testament. Okay, John 6, 39. This is the will of him, Jesus speaking. This is the will of him who sent me, God the Father. That of all that he has given me, these are believers, I lose nothing. By the way, another passage of eternal security, right? Of all that all that the Father has given to him, who has he given to him? Believers. I'll lose nothing, but raise up on the last day. There it is, the resurrection of the righteous on the last day. But again, we're going to see in a minute, in a minute not only will there be a resurrection on the last day, but now Jesus tells us he's the one who will do it. By the way, who's the only one who can raise somebody from the dead ultimately? God can. Can you see how this is an incredible description, not only of eternal security, but that Jesus Christ is God. Right? The whole purpose of the Gospel of John ultimately, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God. And he's been telling them that all the way along, and us too, as we were paying attention in the Gospel of John. In any event, verse 39 again of chapter 6, this is the will of this is the will, the Father's will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, verse 40. Notice this, that everyone who beholds the Son and what believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There will be a resurrection on the last day, those who believe will be, have a resurrection of life. And Jesus Christ is going to raise us from the dead. Notice he also speaks in, in here in verse 40 about eternal life. Now, sometimes we may put those together and just think, well, resurrection from the dead is eternal life. I mean, that's certainly the way the Old Testament would have seen it. That's certainly probably the way that Martha would have understood eternal life. But again, we're going to see and park that for a second. All right. Because we're going to also talk about eternal life. 
when, when we get to chapter 11, go back to where we started, Jesus is going to separate those two things. He's not repeating himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Okay. Jesus had also spoken about this gift of eternal life. I, I, I could give you dozens of scriptures from the Gospel of John. This is one of the most frequent things that Jesus talks about, is that whoever believes has eternal life. We're going to see it in one passage in particular this morning in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John in verse 24. John chapter 5, verse 24. I am the resurrection and I am the life, Jesus says. There is a resurrection from the dead on the last day. I'm the one who's going to raise you from the dead if you're a believer in Christ on the last day. He's going to raise everybody up, but one to a life of eternal life, another to judgment, as Daniel taught. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, he's talking to the Jewish leadership primarily here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, this is the gospel, the truth about who Christ is, and believes him who sent me, has what? Has it, right? Has eternal life. Right. You see, you see, we, he said that they will have it. But then he says, whoever believes has it. Right. And he goes on and specifies exactly what that means. He who, be, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, believes him who sent me, believes what God has said about the son, has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. What is that saying? It is saying the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you have already passed from death to life. So life is this eternal life is not just simply something that you receive on the last day when you're raised from the dead. There's something amazing that you need to absorb. And that is that this eternal life begins the moment you believe in Christ. It is the very life of God and you have it. You've already been released from the bondage of death the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. They've already passed from death to life. So eternal life doesn't begin at the resurrection of the dead on the last day. Eternal life begins, began for you if you're a believer, at the moment a person believes in Jesus Christ. At that moment. Who will raise the saints on the last day? Jesus will. Who gives eternal life? Jesus gives eternal life. I want you to think, so this is, there's this, there is this resurrection from the dead on the last day. Jesus, I says, I will give you that. I will raise you from the dead on the last day. Jesus says, whoever believes receives eternal life. But Jesus is the one who gives that eternal life. He gives it. Okay. Let's go to John chapter nine, chapter 10, verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27. See, if you think about these two subjects, and you stop placing Jesus into the subject, okay? You say, there is a resurrection from the dead on the last day. Jesus is going to do it. There is this eternal life that you receive when you believe in Christ. Jesus is going to give it. 
Believing is a matter of beholding him, the person of Christ, and believing in him. Then you find out that this one you believed in is the one who will raise you on the last day. This one who you believe in is the one who gives you eternal life. See how he's, he's putting himself in the picture in such a way that we understand and we're more aware of who he is and his power and his greatness and his deity. Look at John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. And notice verse 28. And I give eternal life to them. Whoever believes in Christ has eternal life. Who gives it to him? Jesus gives it to him. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No sooner again does he talk about eternal life that he emphasized the security of that. You will never perish. I have, I have you in my hand. Nothing, no way, no how, no person can ever snatch you out of my hand. <laughs> Just like Jesus builds his teaching on the resurrection one step at a time. Remember, he started with what was taught in the Old Testament. Then he reveals that he is the one who will raise the saints on the last day. Jesus does the same thing concerning eternal life. First, he reveals that whoever believes in him has eternal life, has it now. And then he reveals that he is the one who gives this life. And with that, we now return to where we started this morning. John chapter 11, verse 25. John chapter 11, verse 25. John eleven twenty-five. Jesus said to her, now again, what's the setting? We have Martha coming out to meet Jesus, expressing the mourning of his, that she has in her heart for the loss of her brother Lazarus. She tells him, he, she, he tells her, uh, you, your brother will rise again. She replies, referencing the, the resurrection of the dead on the last day. It's all set up now. Okay. We've seen Jesus saying that I will be the one who raises on the last day. And then we have the subject of eternal life and we see that it's given to you and you have it at the moment of salvation. And that Jesus is the one who gives it to you. But now look at verse 25, a tremendous new revelation. Jesus said to her, not only is there a resurrection of the dead on the last day, not only am I the one who will raise you, but he gets it even more directly. What does he say? I am the resurrection. I want you to get the sense of the power and really surprise of that. The clarity that now comes into view about resurrection. You are picturing it as this event on the last day. You are picturing me being there and raising you from the dead. But I'm here to tell you that I am that. I embody resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time fathoming the depths of that. We're going to see Martha did too. But I think we get the gist of it, right? The resurrection is a person. It's a person. I'm the resurrection and the life. Life is a person too. He who believes in me, there it is again. We'll, we'll see this next week, what this means. We'll live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then the key question for all of us, do you believe this? That's what we need to come away today with, that question. Answer it. But answer it in a way that understands the magnificence of what he's saying. 
what has been building step by step now reaches its climax. With one simple statement, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a revolution in our understanding. Why? It, it revolutionizes our understanding of resurrection. Not only is it an event on the last day, it's a person. It revolutionizes our understanding of life itself. Not only is there life and that there's eternal life and there's life after death. Jesus is that life. He is that life. You see, what's happening in the Gospel of John is that more and more we're seeing things that are our hope. And we see that they're all in him. Our hopes, no matter what it is, all right? I mean, Mercedes-Benz, putting it aside for a minute. But in terms of ultimate, the ultimate questions of life, why am I here? Why do I have to die? Is there anything after death? All of that is a person. God's answer to that, you know? God's answer to that. He's the first. He's the last. He's everything in between. With that one statement, I am, he completely revolutionizes our understanding of resurrection, of life, and of himself. That's the power and clarity of one sentence. We learn so much about resurrection, about life, and about him. The resurrection, he's saying, it's me. Eternal life, it's me. And oh, by the way, me and only me, right? There is one name by which you can be saved. I am the way, Jesus says, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, there's no there's no slipping away. There's no confusion here. There's no sitting on the fence here, right? He's, made, he's saying, this is what I want you to believe, right? I am resurrection. I am life and only me. And since resurrection is a person and eternal life is a person, God in the flesh Messiah come down from heaven. It, it becomes difficult to really describe any other way. And I think that's on purpose than really the facts. Now, it'll take us a lifetime and more to really probe the depths of all of this. But at least now I hope you can see that that there's a convergence in the Gospel of John. All these strands come together in person. And resurrection is not just a future event. It's a person, and that person is always with you. It's the person who is standing right before Martha, speaking with her. It's the one who stood before the woman at the well, and she said, the Messiah will come, and he will say, the one who is speaking to you, I am that Messiah. The one who stood before the man born blind and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, I don't know who he is. Tell me what that's all about. And he says, I am this. I am the one you're standing before you, this same one, this person who will always be with you. He stood before John the Baptist, who called him the son of God and the lamb of God and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, who also expressed the truth about who Jesus is, the Messiah, the son of God. Nicodemus, he stood before the Jews who rejected him, the people of Galilee, the disciples. He's the one who stood before all of them and presented himself in various aspects of who he is. But he's also the one who died for you and for me. And he was raised from the dead himself on the third day. And if you're a believer, this person will never leave you because he's in you. That's another one that'll take an eternity to understand. Again, notice the addition there. Here he is. He's the resurrection. He is the life. 
and now he's in you. Not only is he, he was standing before Martha, he's in you and I, if we're believers in Christ, and we're in him. And just like that day Martha asked Jesus to pray on her behalf, Jesus is always interceding for us. Always. So in other words, at the end, he brings this all and says, this is all a gift. Believe God the Father is saying, believe in my son and you get all of it. Why? Because you get all of him, the complete Christ you have. Again, now that takes, I can say that this morning, we can, we can in some sense, okay, I get it. Christ is in me. I'm in him. That's a complete picture. But again, it will take a lifetime of absorbing more and more truth about God's word before we start to understand the depths, just like the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of the love of God. It's not just a statement. It's not just looking at a Greek word or two Greek words for love. It's what? It's immense. And we have to take Everything that the word of God has to say to understand, to even get a glimpse, a grab, grip at any kind about the love of God. Let's go to Ephesians as we close. Chapter 1, verse 15. Because you see, not only, of course, is the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, includes the Old Testament and the Gospels. But then it also includes the, the epistles of Paul. And the Lord has given mysteries for Paul to reveal. So those get added on. Okay. Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, too, I, Paul, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, that's where it starts, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. While making mention of you in my prayers, and here is Paul's prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you now, in addition to salvation and eternal life and the adoption and being in Christ and him in you, I, I, I pray that the Father give you a spirit of wisdom. This is what we need to start understanding these things. And what revelation in what? The knowledge of him. Paul would say in the book of Philippians that I may come to know him. See, it's a lifetime and more I, that you that you're, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. You know you're called, but there's a hope. And I want you to understand the dimensions of that. What are the riches See, Paul, Paul, too, is struggling to express the magnificence of what he sees, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? You believe in him and you get the complete Christ and we'll be forever and ever understanding more about what that really is all about. But it's something about surpassing greatness of his power. Toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of God, the father's might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far, by the way, we're up there with him. In fact, chapter two of Ephesians says that he raised us and he brought us up there with him. 
That'll take 100 lifetimes to understand, too, by the way. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21. This is the complete Christ. This is who's in you, and you are in far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. See how things are expanding beyond our ability to hold, right? That's why we need God. We need the word. We need Jesus in our in spirit in our hearts. And God the Father we can pray to. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. God the Father put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus and gave him, gave him another gift as head over all things. Here he is, the magnificence, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name. And all things are under his feet. And this one God has given as head over all things to us, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The first, the last, and everything. All right, let's close in prayer. And we'll now get ready for the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, as we hear these words ringing in our hearts this morning and realizing that we're we're scratching the surface, but that we know this is something wonderful that is dawning in our hearts about the person of your son. Now let us take that with us as we now turn to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper this morning. It is a memorial. It is where we, get, we, we are to remember and marvel at the death of your son and all that's accomplished. Help us to, in the same way, be able to see something else in the death of your son that we haven't seen before or to bring to remembrance the amazing things that we've learned and know, but we need to come to know even now. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If everybody could stand again, we will now usher in the Lord's Supper with a song.
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin at nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing good that I had done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Oh, no other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? When we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are bringing into remembrance his death and declaring and proclaiming it. Jesus doesn't mention his own death in chapter 11. Of course, he had referred to it earlier a few times. First, somewhat mysteriously, but then more directly in chapter 10, he talks about the the, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. But you see, if Christ hadn't died for us, we would all die in our sins and there would be no resurrection of life. The very gospel that Paul came to deliver. He said this about it. I deliver to you as first importance, but I also received that Christ died for our sins. That's first, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. God's gospel message includes both Christ's death and his resurrection. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. He partook of our flesh and blood and died. And in so doing, he rendered powerless the one who had who had the power of death. 
That is the devil. He freed all of us who through fear of death were subject to slavery all our lives. That's what he accomplished on the cross. He was nailed to the cross at the hands of godless men and put to death. But God raised him up again. And when he did, he put an end to the agony of death. That's what happened at the cross and resurrection. Death itself, the agony of it, was put to an end. It is finished. It's impossible for Jesus to be held in its power. Why? Because he is the resurrection and he is the life. So God has saved us. He's given us a calling. It's all for his purpose and grace and glory. It was given to us in Christ from all eternity. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And today we remember him in his death for us. You prepare the communion elements at this time. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he prayed. He broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, I, all of us, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today for all that you've given us to, to marvel at and absorb and have challenge us about the person of your son, that he is the resurrection, that he is the life. But not only that, but he is the bread of life who died for us. That that it's his body on the cross and that the cup, the new covenant that was first revealed by Jeremiah, it's in the blood of Christ. And we thank you that we have an opportunity in celebrating the Lord's Supper to bring these things into remembrance about him and proclaim his death until he returns. We ask that you would help us in all these matters through the Holy Spirit by the in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Invite you to Bible study on Thursday, August 11th at 6.30 p.m. We are here in person. You can also join us on Skype. I do want to remind everybody about our giving policy. Every once in a while, I want to remind everybody that we don't tithe. We don't have any promises or pledges. When the Lord has given you and you, you understand that he's a giver and you want to give like he does, enjoy then that is the motivation you should have. Um, we, we do, you can do, you can, if you want to give to our ministry, you can send in the mail or you easiest is in the website, on the website. Um, we have PayPal there. That giving does not just 
mean the preaching word ministry here. It also applies to other Christians who are in need. And I got to keep saying this, especially Christians in the persecuted church around the world. Okay. That, that in fact, when, when Paul taught on giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it was in the context of them preparing a, an offering, not for Paul, okay, but for the poor in, in Jerusalem, the saints in Jerusalem. Now, now they did support Paul, it, it, sometimes, you know, in amazing ways, but but also, and Paul's heart was to always remember the poor, remember the poor. And so I want that to be our heart as well. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son. Once again, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that your son died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and that you raised him from the dead on the third day. And whoever believes in your son at the moment he or she believes has eternal life and will never perish. Thank you again for all you have provided us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Spirit, amen.